to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer in case you need to exercise the option of 1 John 1, 1.9 if we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God. It does not mean to make little trite statements like, Lord, forgive me for my sins. You know, we are to admit specific sins, not just to generalize. Uh, furthermore, you don't. You know, notice how the text does not say, ask God to forgive you. It always seems to go past some people. It, says if, it doesn't say if we ask forgiveness, God forgives us. It says if we admit our sins, God forgives us. So it's automatic. We admit our sins to God. He automatically forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, known sins, forgotten sins, whatever it might be. God forgives us instantly, removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And we are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can advance in a spiritual life. So we always take a few moments just to make sure that we're in fellowship and in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit so we can take in God's Word, understand it, and see how it applies to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have such a great salvation, that you have provided everything for us at the cross. You designed a perfect solution to human sin that incorporated every dimension, every aspect of sin, that Jesus Christ died there as our spiritual substitute, that he paid the penalty on the cross, that every single sin in human history was poured out upon him, And he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God may be in us because of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, as we continue to study what took place during that horrible time in our Savior's life, during the trials and the crucifixion, we pray that we might gain a greater understanding of all all that took place and all that was required in order to bring us to salvation and to give us eternal life. We pray that we might be challenged by the things that we learn, that this great salvation is not something to be treated lightly, but as we understand it, that it should motivate us towards greater love for you and greater obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Open your Bibles with me to the 19th chapter of John. The 19th chapter of John, and we are going to study this morning the final verdict of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's final verdict. Now, one of the things that I am trying to do for all of us is to correlate the events of the trials of Christ. There were six specific trials that took place, not just one or two. None of the Gospels treat all of them together. Each author of each Gospel has different has a different theme and a different perspective, and they are not writing biography from the perspective of Western civilization. They are writing Gospels. It's a different type of literature. It is simply to explain vital doctrines about Jesus Christ in terms of his saving work, and each gospel writer has a different perspective. And one of the difficulties, if you're trying to sit down and study these things for yourself, is to correlate the different gospels. Now, you can pick up uh, harmonies, and you can look in the back of uh, your study Bible. For example, I know some of you have a Ryrie study Bible, and perhaps some other study Bibles also have a harmony of the Gospels in the back, and you can take some time and study, study that out. But I'm trying to put these things together, and it's interesting. As a pastor, you come down, you teach through a section like this. To be able to teach this, I've got to be able to harmonize all that in my own mind. Sometimes you can spend as much as five or six hours just trying to put two verses together. <laughs> so it, gets, it stretches your time a little bit sometimes when you try to do this, but it's also rewarding to understand all that is going on uh, during this particular event. So I'm going to, uh, this morning, especially later on in the message, try to pull this together so we get a perspective of everything that was said and can uh, paint for you a portrayal of all these events uh, leading up to Pilate's final verdict. I don't want this to just appear to be an academic exercise in trying to correlate these things together, but there should impress upon our thinking all that was involved under the sovereign authority of God in bringing about our salvation. That's where it's headed. It's to impress upon us all that was necessary. Now, last time... We looked at the fact that uh, primarily in Luke 23 that Pilate had attempted to negotiate uh, some release of Jesus. He has already announced at least three times that he can find no fault in Jesus, that Jesus is innocent, that he cannot find any reason why he is guilty of a capital crime. We came to the point that he discovered that Jesus was from Galilee, so well, I've got another out here, so I'll send him over to Herod, who happens to be in town. Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he figured, well, since Jesus is a Galilean, that comes under uh, Herod's domain, so I'll dump the responsibility on Herod. But Herod passed the buck right back to him. Herod agreed that Jesus was not guilty as well. But he refused to release Jesus. That's the point. He's, the buck is passed to him. He says he's not guilty, but... I'm not going to release him either. I'm going to send him back to you. And he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, instead of just releasing Jesus, he continues to try to negotiate some sort of release. He keeps appealing 
to the Jews one way or another, but he won't just make an authoritative decision and release Jesus. And this points out the fact, as we've already seen in Pilate, he has no concept of absolute truth at the core of his character. And we see the principle that when you don't have absolutes and when your thinking is not grounded on absolutes, that no matter how objective the system of law, whether it's the Mosaic law of the Jews or the uh, legal system of the Romans, no matter how much it may align with establishment principles, relativism always leads to subjectivity, and subjectivity always leads to compromise, and when you are operating in subjectivity, justice is perverted and destroyed. And both systems, no matter how good the systems were, because both the religious leaders of Israel and the political leaders of Rome in Jerusalem had caved into relativism, they had lost any concept of justice. <coughs> now, in the last time, as we came to our conclusion, we looked at Pilate's attempt to solve the problem through offering a substitute, Barabbas. And he took Barabbas, who was a, in prison. He was a murderer. He had led a revolt. He was a... Um, he was really the scum of society, and so Pilate gives them a choice between the scum of society and the savior of the world, and they chose Barabbas. And this shows the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, that man on his own, apart from the grace of God, does not want a savior, does not see the need for a savior, and rejects the savior. And there's a fascinating little sidelight that Matthew tells about in relationship to the Barabbas episode that we will examine. But first I want to review the order of events here to get them in your mind. Some of you want to take notes on this. One of the reasons I'm doing this is that eventually we will be teaching the life of Christ or different aspects of the life of Christ downstairs. And this makes it easier for the teachers to get these things down uh, if I do some of this work for them. You know, that's one of the roles of the pastor. It constantly amazes me when I talk to groups and I talk to pastors and say, what do you do with your time? And they spend all of their time doing this and that and the other thing, and they end up giving little sermons, what I call sermonettes for Christianettes, three points in a poem, on Sunday morning. And, and it may be enlightening a little bit, and it may... Uh, stimulate the emotions and make everybody feel a little better and encouraged and uplifted, etc., etc. But I say, well, in your church, who is it that trains the teachers, the Sunday school teachers? You see, the person with the seminary training, the person who supposedly has the education, the only guy there is the pastor. And yet they, uh, they're not doing much in terms of their seminary education or teaching anybody from the pulpit. But that's it. And part of my job here is to at least communicate enough information that the teachers downstairs have this as a resource to be able to teach the kids in Sunday school. That's all part of what a pastor should do from the pulpit, but I find that somehow that gets lost in the muddle. So let's try to put these events together in some sort of chronological order. First of all, Jesus was brought before Annas. He is the former high priest and he is still recognized because of his authority. He, was the, he had a tremendous amount of power, as we saw when we studied that, in Jerusalem and had appointed high priests. In fact, six of the high priests who succeeded him were all related to him. He's 
This is the first trial. Jesus is brought before Annas at night. Matthew 26, John 18, 13 through 24 describes that. Secondly, we saw Peter's three denials that take place during that time, the courtyard outside of Annas' residence. And this occurs somewhere between 3 and 3.30 in the morning before the cock crowed. The cock crowed to announce dawn. Dawn occurred very early that time of year in Jerusalem, about uh, 4 in the morning or so. Uh, then he is taken to Caiaphas, still before dawn. So these are illegal trials. These um, uh, trials are all in contradiction to the Mishnaic law, which said that a trial had to take place during daytime. And if it was a capital verdict of guilt, then it could not be given the same day of the trial. So they're going to uh, violate all of these laws. We saw at least seven different laws, according to uh, Jewish law, that were violated in these trials. It's taken to Caiaphas before dawn. Caiaphas then uh, tries to find witnesses. They drum up a lot of witnesses who can't even agree with each other. And then finally, Jesus... uh, makes a statement that he is the Son of God, and so Caiaphas tears his robes, uh, accuses Jesus on the basis of his own uh, testimony, condemning himself, and he calls the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is, in order to give it a semblance of legality, he's tried before the Sanhedrin just after dawn. This is described in Matthew 27.1, Mark 15.1, Luke 22.66-71. So during that same time, Judas tries to give his... Uh, money back, the 30 pieces of silver. Now he's overcome with guilt and remorse and he commits suicide. Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Six. Then Jesus is taken to Pilate. There are, we've covered the three religious trials, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and the Jews are not allowed to execute anyone uh, as a, uh, as a nation under the authority of Rome. They have to get the permission of the Roman government, so they take Jesus to Pilate to get the sentence of crucifixion. This is covered in Matthew 27, 2, uh, verse, and verses 11 through 14, Mark 15, 2 through 5, Luke 23, 1 through 5, and John 18, 28, down to 38a. That is the first trial before Pilate. Now, what happens here is that the trial is held early in the morning, in the Praetorium, it's probably around 5 a.m. There's, dawn has already taken place, but it's still very early. We will see the mention later on in chapter 19 that uh, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. So this is r- probably close to 5 a.m. When, when this initial trial before Pilate takes place. There we saw the Jews would not enter into the praetorium because they were afraid they would disqualify themselves through touching something unclean or coming in contact with something that would render them ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in the Passover that particular day. So Pilate had to come outside in order to speak to the Jews. So he's going outside to speak to the Jews, then he's coming back inside to talk to Jesus, then back outside. So you see the Jews are really in control. Pilate has given up and abdicated his position of authority already. He has already demonstrated that he's willing to compromise with the Jews. Now, we saw here that this first drop, Pilate sought clarification on the accusation. And they replied that, that Jesus had violated their law. Luke alone gives us the indictment in Luke 23, 2. We found this man misleading our nation, 
and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, the first two statements are patently false. And the third, they are using that to try to show the Roman authority that, yes, Jesus has violated a Roman law. He is uh, inciting rebellion. He's trying to uh, uh, foment a revolt against Caesar. And for that, he needs to be executed because he is a rebel. So Pilate is outside with them. Then he goes back into the praetorium. This is in Luke 23, verse 33, and asks if Jesus is the king of the Jews. Ask Jesus, he says, Jesus, is this true? Are you king of the Jews? This is covered in Matthew 27, 11, Luke 23, 3. And there's an interchange that relates to Pilate's volition. This is covered in John 18, 33 to 38, when Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? In other words, are you asking this for your own information, or is it just because that's the charge that they brought against me? We studied that into relationship to Pilate's volition and God consciousness two Sundays ago. This concluded with Jesus stating to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth, that is a genitive of source, from the source of the truth, hears my voice. Pilate responds in a somewhat sarcastic tone, what is truth, and immediately turns his back on Jesus and walks back outside. When he goes outside, according to Luke 23, 4, he announces that he has found no guilt in this man. That's his first pronouncement that Jesus is not guilty. Now, apparently, by comparing Luke 23, 5 through 7 with Matthew 27, 12 and 13, Pilate goes back and forth one or two times. John doesn't tell us this, but apparently he goes outside, talks to the crowd, comes back inside, and he continues to uh, ask Jesus questions, but Jesus, according to those passages, makes no more answer. This, of course, uh, this relates to the statement in Luke 23, 5 through 7, that the people kept on insisting that he was a criminal. So Pilate is operating like a yo-yo back and forth between the people and Jesus, and finally insists that it is uh, that he is not guilty. It's at that point, according to Luke 23, 5 through 7, he discovers that that. Uh, Jesus is from Galilee, so he says, ah, this is my way out. I'm going to send him down to Herod Antipas. So he is taken to Herod. Luke 23, 8-12 describes the second uh, civil trial. And that takes place, you might mark it in your Bibles, between uh, John 18:38a and 30, or between 8:38 and 8:39. <coughs> 8.38 records his first statement, I find no guilt in him. And that is comparable to the statement in Luke 23, verse 4. Those correlate together. Then there's a gap that John skips over. And in verse 39 and 40, he comes to the, uh, he comes to the Barabbas issue. So, point six, he's taken to Herod. That is covered are placed between John 18:38 and verse 39 and then in verse 7 he Jesus is returned to Pilate for the sixth and final trial this is the second trial before Pilate so it's Pilate Herod and then Pilate now the scene here we know from uh, Matthew 27 
is that Pilate now goes outside. They bring Jesus back, and Pilate goes outside, and he sits on the judgment seat. This is a specific um, seat or throne outside of the praetorium, and when he sits, this is where the judge sits to render his verdict. So we see Pilate taking a position of authority by sitting on the judgment seat. And it is there that Pilate makes the second announcement of Jesus' innocence. This is covered in Luke 23:13-16, and makes it clear again that he has, sees Jesus is not guilty. In Luke 23:13, he summons before him all of the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. This is an official summons. Uh, uses a technical legal term there for for summoning the people to indicate that he is going to make an official pronouncement. And in Luke 23:14, he says, Jesus is not guilty. This is his second not guilty. And in verse 15, he says, just as Herod agreed that Jesus was not guilty. And then we saw last time that even though he asserts Jesus' innocence, and he says Herod, too, states that, uh, agrees that Jesus is not guilty, I will still punish him. And this is the Greek word, Paiduo. Now, this is very important to try to understand what's going on here is the distinction in some of these Greek words to understand the differences. P-A-I-D-E-U-O. This has to do with discipline or punishment and is a general word, but it usually does not describe the harsh flagellation that occurs as a prelude to crucifixion. Now, this is this is one of those dis- what appears to be a discrepancy between the, the uh, gospels, but I will clarify that for you in a minute. See, in Luke, I mean, in John 19, we're told Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. There are two scourgings in John. Again, we read down in. Um, Excuse me. There are two scourgings that take place. John tells us about the first one that occurs before Pilate utters his final verdict. And then uh, the other Gospels tell us about the final scourging. So apparently there, were, there are two beatings that take place. This first one is going to be a relatively light beating and was not designed to permanently maim or cripple Jesus, because Pilate is still trying to get Jesus off. He's still trying to find some way not to execute Jesus. He is still stressing his, his innocence. So he says in, in Luke 23:15, he says, I'll punish him, which shows the discrepancy in his character here, because he says there's not, no fault in him, but I'll go ahead and punish you. He's just trying to compromise with the Jews and somehow do something that will satisfy their bloodlust. Then, following that, he attempts to come up with a substitute by offering them Barabbas, which is what we examined last time. But in terms of this interesting insight, we need to look at Matthew 27. So you might want to turn to Matthew 27 in your Bibles, looking at verse 27. Uh, 27, 17, and 18. 
When therefore they were gathered together, that is, at this time, Pilate is still on the Bema seat. He's still on the judgment seat. That's the technical term for it, the Bema seat. Same as we have for Jesus, judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. Pilate says to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ or Messiah? For he knew, and then you have a parenthetical insight from from, uh, Matthew, for he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. So Pilate is fully aware that the motivation here is not justice. The motivation is the envy of the religious leaders, that they are, Jesus is too popular, and so they simply want to get rid of them. And then Matthew inserts a fascinating little aside. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sends a message to him. His wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now, Matthew is loaded with interesting little supernatural events that take place that are not mentioned in any of the other gospel. This is typical of Matthew. Remember, Matthew is writing to Jews to demonstrate the messianic qualifications of Jesus. So they would expect if Jesus is Messiah, the Messiah of God, then there are going to be certain accompanying supernatural events. Think with me on these. At the beginning of the Gospel, we are told of four distinct revelations that are given in dreams in the birth narrative. There are revelations to uh, Joseph, three dreams to Joseph specifically, and then there is a dream warning the Magi about Herod. They had also, the Gentile Magi, had also received an additional revelation about the birth of Messiah through the appearance of the star. So this is typical of God's use of extraordinary means to reveal Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles don't have the Scriptures. The Jews have the Scriptures. Gentiles don't. So God uses uh, extra-biblical means of revelation to the Gentiles in Matthew. He did to the Jews as well, the dreams to to, um, Joseph. But specifically, he does this with Gentiles as well. That all occurs at the beginning of the Gospel. Not that there aren't miracles and other things within the gospel, but it's like, it, it, he, he uses a technique, Matthew does, a literary technique called inclusio, which is like bracketing something. And you see these interesting supernatural events at the birth of Jesus, and then Matthew alone tells us about some fascinating supernatural events that occur at the close of Jesus' life. One of these is this dream to for uh, this dream revelation to Pontius Pilate's wife. Others are the dead who rise from the grave at the time of Jesus' death. Now, you don't hear much about that, but when Jesus was on the cross, and he, after he died, the graves, many graves of Old Testament saints, 
in Jerusalem opened and these Old Testament believers were temporarily resuscitated and they went through the streets of Jerusalem witnessing about Jesus as Messiah. Now that is profound. But nobody, there's only one just brief mention of it in Matthew and that's it. So we're left to speculate as to how that impacted Jerusalem. The other thing that Matthew points out that no one else does is that the temple veil is torn from top to bottom at the time of Jesus' death on the cross. So Matthew is filled with these allusions to supernatural events that take place outside of the ordinary. So why Pilate's wife? Why does she have this particular dream? I think one thing is to point out that here is a Gentile woman who recognizes Jesus as a believer. I think that we can uh, infer that because she says he is righteous, that, he, that she recognizes that he's a believer. This is almost an identical statement to that of the centurion at the cross who said that this man was righteous, Dikaios. You have in your English some lousy translation like this man is innocent. That is not what the centurion said in the Greek. He said this man is Dikaios. He is righteous. And so that indicates that he was probably a believer at that point and very possibly that Pilate's wife as well became a believer. It's interesting, Josephus comments in his Antiquities that in Nero's time, which is a few years after this, that even though the, the pagan leaders of Damascus were virulently anti-Semitic, their wives, with few exceptions, had all become converts to Judaism. Furthermore, Poppea, who was Nero's wife, was also a God-fearer and pleaded with him on behalf of the Jews on several occasions. There is also, we can't document it, we don't know how accurate it is, but there's a very ancient tradition in uh, the early church that Pilate's wife was indeed a believer and had trusted Christ. So all of these are quite interesting little scenarios. But but Matthew uses this to once again bring in the fact that Pilate has no reason for condemning Jesus. He is innocent. At least three times he has announced that Jesus is innocent. Herod has announced that Jesus is innocent. Pilate's wife proclaims that Jesus is righteous. He is dikaios, and yet Pilate still refuses to release him and comes under the continued pressure of the Jewish leaders. So in contrast to this Gentile woman, and you can't mistake that reference, in contrast to this Gentile woman, the male leaders of the Jews continue to insist that Jesus be put to death. Matthew 27:20. but the chief priest, but indicates the contrast with between the chief priests and Pilate's wife. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So you see, at this point, the masses haven't made up their mind. They're still vacillating. It is the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders of the synagogue, the Sanhedrin, that is out there circulating among the crowds and stirring them up to the point of instigating a riot. 
Then, verse 21, the governor, that is Pilate, answers and says to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Pilate is seeking Jesus' release now for three reasons. First of all, he knows that their motive is envy. Second, he has found no fault in Jesus and has asserted that at least three times. And third, his wife has warned him not to get involved in this Jewish plot, so he's trying to do everything he can to legitimately release Jesus. But the crowd surprises him, and they cry out, Barabbas. I think this caught Pilate completely off guard. He could not, in his wildest imagination, have expected that the crowd would take on Barabbas because he was such a known criminal. He had instigated riots. He was a murderer. He was a thief. All of these were true. He was one of the worst criminals in Judea at the time, and he could not imagine anyone choosing Barabbas over Jesus. What in the world could this man have done? So Pilate says to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all cry out, and this is the first cry. Uh, it's parallel to Luke twenty-three twenty-one. Let him be crucified. And in Luke, it says, Crucify him, crucify him. He, he repeats it for emphasis, that the crowd cries it out, using the Greek word uh, krazo, meaning to cry out, to yell, to scream. And it shows the intense emotion of the masses now. They've been stirred up and they're just chanting, crucify him, crucify him, all through this time. And, and you can just see the, 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 the leaders of the synagogue out there working the crowd up, trying to build this chant over and over again, getting them stirred up emotionally so that they quit thinking and just follow the herd instinct. Now, to pick up what is going on here, Matthew 27, after Matthew 27, 22, uh, you have to go over to Luke 23, 22 to pick up the, the um, continued action. Pilate says to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him. And release him. This is where he uses the term paiduo to simply punish Jesus. He's not using the more extreme words. Mastizo are uh, the word for flagellation or whipping later on. This is his third announcement with Herod's statement, the fourth statement of Jesus' innocence. So it is clear through repetition that there is no fault in Jesus. He is impeccable in his... In his um, hypostatic union in his humanity, Jesus is without sin. He is not guilty of any crime. He is not guilty of even a minor misdemeanor. He has committed no sin, and so he, it is emphasizing for us his qualification to go to the cross as our substitute. And in contrast, we see the vacillation of Pilate. So at this point, there comes the initial punishment of Jesus. This is uh, the paiduo of Luke 23:22, and this corresponds to the initial beating of John 19, verse 1. So let's go back to John 19, verse 1, and pick up the action in John. 
Then Pilate therefore took Jesus. See, he's announced his innocence three times. The crowd screaming for his crucifixion. He says, okay, I'm going to try to pacify the crowd. I'm going to have him beaten. Now, apparently, he takes Jesus back. He's in the praetorium. He goes into the praetorium, then takes Jesus to the Roman soldiers. This beating does not take place in front of the crowds. And they scourge Jesus. This is the Greek verb, mastizo. It's an aorist active indicative, and it means to beat severely with a whip. It means to flog. Sometimes it is used of the more extreme whipping. But we have to ask the question here, is this the whipping, the scourging that takes place immediately before a crucifixion, and which takes place and is referred to later on in Matthew, or is it something less? And I think we must conclude it is something less. And the reason we do this is because Pilate is going to bring Jesus back outside in verse 5 and show this beaten, bloody, bruised man in, 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 in humiliation, draped in this probably old, worn, purple robe with the crown of thorns mashed down on his head, a pathetic sight to try to appeal to the masses that this man is not dangerous. How can this be a criminal? You're worried about him uh, taking power from you and, and his appeal to the masses. And look how I've broken him in front of everybody. He's not a threat to you anymore. Pilate is still trying to release Jesus. If you look down in 1912, it says, As a result of this, the interchange he had, further interchange he had with Jesus, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Pilate is still trying to get Jesus off the hook. Now, the kind of scourging that took place prior to a, the crucifixion was the, the kind that was not one that you could survive. It was designed to do all but cripple, and in many cases it not only crippled, but it killed the victim before they could ever get him to the cross. It was the kind of intense beating with the, um, the flagellum, which was the short-handled whip that was like a cat of nine tails, had many different strands coming off of it, and in those strands they would weave in rocks and bone and metal, and they would just beat the, the victim, they would beat him on the face, they would beat his back, they would tie him in such a way that, that either over a stump or around a, a, a post so that his the skin, the muscles of the back would be drawn as tight as they could be so that when you ripped him with that whip, they, the skin would just split open and blood would go everywhere and they would beat the victim until the major arteries were exposed and in many cases broken, and the internal organs exposed. You don't survive that. Obviously, the beating of 19.1, the scourging mentioned in 19.1, would not be that severe because Pilate still expects to release Jesus. So what we see here is the first beating, the first scourging of our Lord. And it, we see in verse 2, the soldiers wove a crown of thorns. So someone went out and there was a, 
a thorn bush there and they cut off the limbs and they wove it together and they put this on his head, just jammed it down so that the thorns pierced into his skin and ripped it open and then they put a purple robe on him. Now, this was sort of standard operating procedure. The, the, the soldiers are portrayed in some of the writings at that time as, as being very sadistic. They, they loved to torture the criminals that were to be executed. And that they would usually do this with any criminal. They would dress them up and they would taunt them and mock them. And sometimes they would put grounds on them, not just because, specifically because Jesus was uh, claimed to be king of the Jews, but just because this was a standard way of ridiculing and uh, sort of the, the psychological destruction of the victim as well as physical destruction of the victim. And so the soldiers do this, and they put this old robe on. They would notice at the end they take this robe off. This isn't the robe they gamble for later on. This was just some old robe that they had that they used for this purpose. So you see this picture, this pathetic portrayal of Christ when he's brought out before the crowd that he's got on this old faded robe and he's he's been beaten. Uh, verse three tells us they they began to come up to him. They just all the soldiers would line up and they would stand him up and they came up and they would in a very mocking, sarcastic manner bow and say, Hail King of the Jews and then they would punch him. They would either slap him with an open fist or they would punch him or they would pick something up and hit him with it. And so he becomes a human punching bag for probably eight or ten soldiers at this point who are beating him to a pulp. So when he is brought out in verse 5, he comes out and his face is a bruised, bloody pulp. The eyes are swollen. His nose is swollen, probably a bloody nose. The crown of thorns has been jammed on his head, so you have his hairs from all of this. He's been sweaty and wet, and, and blood is just matted in his hair and probably running down the side of his face. And he's virtually unrecognizable at this point. And besides this, he's been whipped. There's blood all over the, the uh, robe, and he is a, uh, a pathetic, impotent Sight, And Pilate brings him out and he says, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is the fourth now announcement by Pilate that he's innocent. Yet nevertheless, he's had this innocent man beaten, which tells us a lot about his character. Jesus therefore came out. It indicates that Jesus came out. It wasn't brought out. He came out. He still has the physical stamina to walk out on his own, which shows that he must have had a phenomenal physical constitution in his humanity. Wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe, and Pilate says to him, Behold the man. Now this is one of several statements by Pilate uh, during this, this whole interchange that survives into history. He is in the, the Latin is Eka Homo, which has been used as a title for many books on Christ throughout the, the years. It is uh, interesting how Pilate's language, like questions like what is truth, have gained, have lived on in infamy. So they, he brings him out in order to display him as a pitiful, impotent person who has n no threat. 
He's attempting to appeal to the compassion, the mercy of the crowd to reconsider and to let Jesus go. There's no reason to execute him. He poses no threat. I have broken his power. He's been completely humiliated. Look at this guy. Does he really look dangerous? Does he really look like he can pose a threat to your power? And uh, the bloodlust, of course, of the crowd is intensified by the religious leaders who get them chanting again, crucify him, crucify him. They're just not satisfied with anything other than his, his own death. So from this we see that Pilate is consistently trying to avoid the issue, consistently trying to release him, but his attempts fail. Verse 6, when therefore the chief priests and officers saw him, they cry out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says to them, now take him and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is the fifth statement. There's no guilt in Jesus by Pilate. The sixth, if you add in Herod's statement. Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate is being sarcastic there and showing his complete disregard and disrespect for the masses because he knows they can't do that. If they did that, they would be breaking Roman law and they would be guilty and then Pilate could turn the soldiers loose on them and kill all of them as he had done in a previous riot. So they they know that when Pilate says that, he's not serious and that he is ridiculing them. And this drives them to the next level of intensification where they go to the real issue in verse 7, which is the spiritual issue. We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. This is the issue. They are crucifying him not for some uh, alleged rebellion or revolt or political reason, but because they reject his claim to be the Son of God. They reject him as Messiah. Now this has an effect upon Pilate. Verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He recognizes and has in some sense recognized throughout this interchange that there is something different about this. something unique about him. No, at no time has he ever been faced with a criminal who responded the way this man has. And now he hears that he claims to be God and that on top of what his wife has told him, he begins to become afraid for himself. And he goes into the praetorium again. So what has happened is he has brought Jesus out they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. He has had another interchange with the leaders. Jesus has been taken back inside the praetorium. And he goes in for another conversation with Jesus. Where are you from? See, if he claimed to be the Son of God and claims that his kingdom is not from here, then where is he from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He gives him no answer because Pilate is not positive. And a great illustration here of why we should not answer a fool according to his folly as, the, as it says in Proverbs. There are those who are negative. There are those who are asking the wrong question. There are those who are simply asking questions to be argumentative. 
and we should not answer them. It is not necessary to answer them, and Jesus is not going to throw pearls of wisdom, in other words, truth, before swine. That is, someone who is negative and could care less about the truth. So Pilate says in verse 9, or verse 10, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So he tries the intimidation route to somehow threaten Jesus with his authority. Don't you know that I can let you go and you can avoid all of this and I can uh, dismiss you? And this raises the important issue of who has ultimate authority in this whole situation. Now remember, I have pointed this out on several occasions that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Back at the very beginning of the night before the Passover, back in John 13, Jesus knew. He's been telling his disciples what was going to happen to him. He is not afraid. It is not an accident. Jesus didn't lose control somehow and end up getting crucified. This is God's plan, and Jesus is completely relaxed. Now, a point of application for us is that Jesus is going through the most extreme adversity that we can imagine both the physical adversity and the spiritual adversity of facing the fact that before long he is going to have the sins of the world imputed to him. The amount of suffering that Jesus is going to encounter on the cross is nothing compared I mean, is nothing compared to our suffering. I mean, it's, it's, excuse me, it's a million times more than anything we can imagine. The suffering that Jesus has gone through physically so far is nothing compared to what he's going to go through on the cross. The suffering that, that we go through is nothing compared to what he has gone through physically or what he's going to go through on the cross spiritually. And what we see here is Jesus is relaxed. He's calm. He realizes God's in control and this is God's plan. And he is going through this, relying upon God the Holy Spirit and maintaining complete stability. He is demonstrating for us the kind of peace and stability we can have in the midst of any crisis, no matter how great it is, because it is based upon the strength of God the Holy Spirit and knowledge of doctrine. So because of the uh, enablement of God the Holy Spirit plus knowledge of doctrine, Jesus is completely relaxed and he's not threatened or intimidated by Pilate. He says, verse 11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You think you're in control of this? You're not in control of this. God the Father is in control of this. says that this does not negate Pilate's volition or the volition of anyone else involved because they have all exercised their volition. But if God did not give them permission or allow it to happen, no matter how desperately they wanted to crucify him, they couldn't even cut down the tree to put him on. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now, that's a somewhat puzzling statement, and there's a lot of discussion exactly who he's referring to, whether he's referring to Satan, whether he's referring to Judas, whether he's referring to Caiaphas, and it could be any or all of the above. He's just stating a basic principle, is that there are others who have been involved in bringing me before you, and they have the greater culpability. As a result of this now, Pilate is even more convinced of Jesus' innocence. 
Verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out. They continue to cry out, imperfect tense, continue to cry out. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're back to their original charge that he's a political insurrectionist and that Pilate, if you don't do this, the subtle threat here, read between the lines, we'll go to Caesar and we'll have you... uh, you'll lose your job and be taken back to Rome in disgrace. So now this has finally put the final bit of pressure on Pilate. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, it is called Gabbatha. This is outside, and here he is going to render the final verdict. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, sixth hour, when is that? According to Jewish time, that would be noon. But we know that it was between noon and three that Jesus was crucified. This cannot be, according to Jewish time, there would not be enough time uh, in the day left to carry out the crucifixion. So it must be referring to Roman time. It's about the sixth hour, so it's somewhere around six o'clock in the morning, give or take, 15 or 20 minutes. And he says to the Jews, now in sarcasm, Behold your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And again, Pilate is still trying. Now we must go over, shift over to Matthew 27, 23, to fill in the gaps. So you might want to put a cross-reference there in John, right after John 15, to go to Matthew 27, 23, to fill in the gaps. And he said, why? What evil has he done? Again, he's challenging them. But they kept shouting all the more, over and over again, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude. So he brings a base and he gets up. And this is very symbolic, both in Greek history as well as in Jewish history. The washing of the hands indicates that I am absolved of all guilt. It's not my decision, it's your decision. But, of course, that does not work. That does not truly absolve him of his role. It says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. So he finally acquiesces to their pressure and and caves in and compromises. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Now, there has been a misuse of this verse throughout history to justify anti-Semitism. There is no justification for anti-Semitism. This is not a statement that is saying the Jewish people throughout history should be punished because they're all guilty of uh, crucifying Jesus. This is an idiomatic statement. You find similar statements throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and it is merely an idiomatic statement for saying, we accept the responsibility for this decision. And that's it. You can't come along and blame succeeding Jews. Remember, it's not all the Jews that are guilty. Paul was a Jew. John was a Jew. Matthew was a Jew. The writers of the New Testament were all Jewish. There were, in fact, on the first two or three days of the church, there were... Over probably over 15,000 uh, Jewish believers. So it is not 
a justification for anti-Semitism. This is one problem among uh, conservative philosophers and politicians. There's always been that tendency to uh, uh, be anti-Semitic, and it is a terrible thing, and God will always judge a nation that is anti-Semitic. As long as this nation stays pro-Israel, that does not mean we advocate or go along with every policy, but as long as we stay away from anti-Semitism, then God will continue to bless this nation. But once we cave into anti-Semitism, and incidentally, I have seen several times, I get on the Internet every now and then and listen to uh, uh, Israeli uh, Jewish uh, radio and read articles in the, in the Jerusalem Times, and I've been surprised that in a number of editorials in the last year, uh, <clears throat> the, the, uh, this present administration has been accused by many Jews of being the most anti-Semitic in American history. So don't let uh, any kind of appearances fool you into thinking that this administration is really trying to do anything positive for Israel. The Jews know what's going on, and they think that uh, from the top down it's an anti-Semitic administration. And whenever you see any politicians move in the direction of anti-Semitism, the most important thing we can do is get rid of them because they will just bring judgment on the American people. So Matthew 27, these Jews recognize they're accepting responsibility. Pilate is absolving himself of responsibility and they're saying, okay, you don't want to be responsible, we'll take it on and we will uh, crucify him. Then you go to Luke 23:23 to fill in the gaps. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. It's only at this point that he finally releases Barabbas. What an illustration of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in Barabbas' place. Just as Jesus died in the place of this one of the worst criminals of human history, So Jesus Christ has died in our place as a substitute for every sinner in human history. Because you see, before the bar of God's justice, we're no better than Barabbas. Because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You may look at yourself in the mirror and think that you're a law-abiding citizen and a wonderful person and wonderful personality. But as far as God's concerned, we're all equally guilty. We may be relatively better than somebody else, but before the absolute standard of God's perfection, we are no better than Barabbas. So Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single person, no matter how horrible they might be uh, in the human race, including people who are guilty of such heinous crimes as Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Joseph Stalin. Jesus Christ died for every one of those sins on the cross. So Barabbas is released. Jesus is delivered over to their power. Then Matthew tells us what happens next. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort. This is now about 600 soldiers around him. And now they are going to uh, execute the uh, uh, flagitio, which is the prelude to crucifixion on Jesus. The beating he had before is nothing compared to this beating. Now they strip him, they tie him down again. He is stripped naked, uh, 
completely humiliated before all of the soldiers and they began to beat him. They put the scarlet robe on him, they put the crown of thorns on him and they began to, after beating him and uh, whipping him, they spit on him, they continued to call him mockingly, Hail King of the Jews. And Mark 15:19 expresses it better than the other Gospels. In Mark 15, he writes, And they kept beating him. It goes on and on and on. They kept beating his head with a reed, just whipping him back and forth and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And they're punching him until there is nothing on his face but just a bloody mass, totally unrecognizable. And after this, they mocked him. They took his robe off and they put his garments on him, whatever he had before, and they led him away to crucify him. Now, this raises a very important theological question. What is the purpose of the physical sufferings of Jesus in relation to our salvation? Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. First of all, we have to realize that there is a distinction between the penalty for sin and the consequences of sin. The penalty for sin and the curse for sin. Remember in Genesis 2.17, God planted a tree in the garden. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam and the woman, he said, The day you eat from this tree, you will die. The moment they ate, they died spiritually, but they did not die physically. As a result of their spiritual death, they were eventually going to die physically. And there was also, as a result of spiritual death, the universe of nature was going to be changed and transformed and come under a curse. So that all physical suffering, all suffering, all misery, all of the things that we see on the earth that are not what they should be, the, in fact, the very curse of the fact that the earth would bring forth thorns. And that's what, when they put the crown of thorns on his head, that represents his identification with the curse. The physical sufferings of Jesus are not for salvation. They do not pay the penalty for sin. Why? The penalty for sin is not physical, it is spiritual. Now, this is hard for some people to understand. But what they do is they identify Jesus with the physical consequences of sin. You see, redemption is both physical and spiritual. Hold your place here in John 19, and let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And the point I am making is that it is only between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God puts darkness on the earth that He imputes to Christ the sins of the world. That's when the sin penalty is paid. That is when the sin penalty is paid. But all of the physical suffering relates to Christ's identification with the physical curse. See, the curse that came as a consequence of spiritual death affects the physical environment. Look at... Romans 8, verse 18. 
Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time, that is, all of the tribulation, all of the sufferings, whatever it may be that go on in the earth during this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, what are we talking about here? Physical or spiritual? We're talking about physical, the creation, the natural realm. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This is talking about the millennium when there is a reversal of the curse on the earth. Remember, when Jesus Christ comes back during the millennial kingdom, the curse is rolled back on the earth. There is no longer the antagonism in the animal kingdom. There is perfect environment in the natural realm. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will be able to put his hand in the cobra's den. So there is a physical consequence to redemption. But redemption is not physical in its function or basis. It is spiritual. For the creation was subjected. Notice passive verb there in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. Whose will was it? It was Adam's will. When Adam chose to sin, it subjected the physical world to futility. That the creation itself, and the future is described then in verse 21, that the creation itself, looking forward to the future, will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The point I am making is that part of the whole package of what took place at the cross included the physical sufferings of Christ. They were not redemptive in the sense of paying the penalty for sin. But they are part of the package because redemption ultimately includes not only the redemption of our physical bodies going from we will put off corruption and put on incorruption, but the earth and the universe itself will ultimately put off corruption and put on incorruption. Why? Because of what Christ did on the cross. So the physical side has to do with dealing his identification with the physical curse consequences of spiritual death. And it is his spiritual death defined as his, as his separation from God judicially between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that pays the penalty for sin. Because the penalty for sin is paid kind for kind, spiritual death for spiritual death, then the physical consequences of spiritual death will be paid for. And that provides the basis for the rolling back of the curse physically. So the physical sufferings of Christ are important. They, are, they do not relate to the spiritual death. They do not relate to the key issue in providing salvation. But they are part of the entire package. That's why Christ had to die physically. But that is, why, that is also why it is not the physical, and this is always the issue that gets some people upset, it's not the physical blood of Christ that saves. The blood of Christ is a metaphor, a picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We can't see what's going on in the spiritual realm. So all of the physical suffering is an illustration for us of what takes place in terms of the spiritual suffering of Christ as a substitute for our sins. So it is his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross that pays the penalty for sin. He's not dead when he says it is finished. And we'll get to that. He's not dead when he says the payment is paid. It's tetelestai. It is the... It is the 
perfect tense of teleao, which means it's completed, paid in full. That occurs before he dies physically. The physical part isn't the payment for sin. The spiritual substitutionary work is that three hours on the cross, but it's all part of the package. You can't just come along and say, well, Jesus could have just died spiritually and then gotten down off the cross and it all would have been done. Because, see, there's another dimension. There's a physical curse that is a consequence of the spiritual penalty. And we have to distinguish, to, be, to think these things through accurately, between the penalty and the consequences, but they're all dealt with by every aspect of what went on at the cross. And this is our great salvation. Now, next time when we come back, we will get into the events leading up to the crucifixion itself and begin to examine the dynamics of what takes place in a payment for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to become impressed once again with all that you have done for us and the fact that you have provided such a great salvation that takes into account every aspect and every dimension of the sin penalty and its consequences. Now, Father, we pray that as we sit here right now, that if there's anyone here that is uncertain of their eternal salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would make that certain right now. All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to improve your life. You don't have to uh, promise moral reformation. You don't have to join a church. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now where you sit. In the privacy of your soul, you can make that decision that determines your eternal destiny. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that for those of us who are believers that we would be challenged by all that was done for us, that we might not treat this lightly, but that it might spur us on to greater growth and love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.